which I would like to draw your attention to this afternoon are found in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. So if you would turn in your Bibles, I will read those very encouraging words to you. Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Lord, we give you great thanks for your word. For by it we find life. It's by your word that you bring about life and by your word that you continue to strengthen us and nourish us. And and so we desire it more than our necessary food. It is we we long for it more than uh, our tongues long for honey and honeycomb. Lord, I pray that you would nourish our souls. You know our need. Uh, That you would speak to each one of us through the clear instruction given, but also through cross-references or even just bringing things to mind that we might better understand how we can live our lives in line with Your Word, that we might find satisfaction as You have designed us to live. And so, work through Your Word and in our hearts now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today's passage can really be outlined in three simple terms. A conclusion, an exhortation, and a request. In verse 1, Paul brings together everything that he has been saying in Philippians chapter 3 to a conclusion. And he's calling the Philippians to stand firm by pursuing Christ's likeness. And in verse 2, he exhorts two women... In particular, to think like Christ, to have Christ-like mindsets. And then in verse 3, he requests a friend that he would help those women in their conflict. So let's look first at his conclusion to all he said in in chapter 3. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, My beloved. Now we know that Paul is concluding everything he has said previously because of that key word at the very beginning, therefore. And as you've, I'm sure, been taught before when you're reading Scripture and you see a therefore, you ask yourself, what is that therefore? Therefore. And so it points back to all he said in chapter 3. And look along with me in your Bibles. In verse 1, he calls them to rejoice in the Lord. In verse 2, that they should be aware of false teachers. And then again, he has this reminder that true Christians worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 3, 
And then in verses 12 through 14, he says they are actually to follow his example as he seeks to pursue Christ's likeness. But in particular, his two commands in verse 17, which we looked at last week, they are also to follow. Brethren, join in following my example and also observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And so what he says here again in verse chapter four, verse one is Therefore, in doing these things, it is in doing these things that you will be able to stand firm. So it's what I say in chapter three. If you do what I call you to do in chapter three, it's in doing those things. You'll be able to stand firm and not be washed away by these false teachers or the allurements of the world. And of course, that's the command he gives in four one stand firm. And this is a military word. And it basically means to stand one's ground. To not give in. To not retreat or be led astray. So to stand firm is to not go off the path. When you're allured. The term is used multiple times in the New Testament actually. 1 Corinthians 16.13 Paul says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Galatians 5.1 It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. And do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by a letter from us. And of course, what he said earlier in Philippians 1.27 Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So what all these exhortations show us is that it's a very real thing that Satan and his demons... And all of his forces, the world, the flesh, as well, he is seeking to use those things to lure us off the path, to draw us away from the truth, and thereby to destroy the church of God. And he is going to use every means possible, believe it, appeals to our flesh, appeals to our pride, threats, scorn, Intimidation, deception, flattery. I mean, all these things are real. It's a very real war. And so we need to remember that we're in a war. A spiritual war. And so we need to live with a wartime mentality or else we will be led astray. I mean, if you're in a war zone and you're not living as if you are in a war zone, you are putting yourself in grave danger. And you might think, well, we're not really in a war zone. Well, that would be to just disregard a large portion of what we find in the Word of God. And this is why Paul exhorts the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God. Because this is real. He's not trying to be inspirational. It's real. So that you will be able to Stand 
firm against the schemes of the devil. You know, in December 1835, during Texas's war for independence against Mexico, a group of Texan volunteer servicemen occupied a former Franciscan mission located in what's known as present-day San Antonio, Texas, nicknamed the Alamo. And the following February, a Mexican force led by General Santa Ana that numbered in the thousands began a siege on the fort. And the defenders of the Alamo never actually exceeded more than 200 men. But the Alamo's defenders dug in. And inspired by the remarkable leadership and the example of uh, their leaders, James Bowie and William Travis, they were resolved to defend the fort to the last. And they held out courageously for 13 days before the Mexican invaders finally overpowered them. And even though the Alamo was lost, their resolve to hold the fort at all costs has gone down in American military history and has embedded itself in, in our minds. We know the story of the Alamo. And what Paul is saying in Philippians 4.1 is simply this. The way to stand firm against false teaching and the allurements of the devil is to do Philippians 3. Hold fast to your pursuit of Christ-likeness. Do not forget that is the one thing that you should be pursuing. Because it is easy to get distracted and busy about all sorts of things. Taking care of our families, working hard at work, making money, uh, even resting. There are so many things vying for our attention. It's so easy to forget. The aim of our life, now that we're followers of Christ, is to follow Christ. That is the one thing we need to pursue. And if, if we keep our minds fixed on that reality, that is what will hold us and enable us to stand firm against the onslaughts of Satan. Hold fast to your pursuit of Christ's likeness and do not put your confidence or hope in the flesh. And one of the best ways to keep you on the right path, again, is to follow godly examples. Put before you godly examples, people who are doing it well, not perfectly, because nobody does it perfectly except Christ, but those who are doing things better than you, who will inspire you and encourage you in your pursuit of Christ. And now these are challenging words from Paul. I mean, he's, again, he's using a militaristic term. He's giving a command, stand firm. And yet... Notice how he packages this command. It's not as a general would order a subordinate, but more like a father to his children. He exhorts them to stand firm with intense affection. I mean, in just this one sentence, he uses this word beloved twice. That's not without accident. That's that's conveying a lot. And on top of this, he describes them as those whom he longs to see. The word conveys an intense desire. It's as if his heart aches to see them. So he's not just 
passing orders along. He's saying these things because he deeply cares about them. He longs to see them. They are beloved. And he's, again, often you'll hear pastors and preachers toss that word out, beloved. Just because it's a good scriptural term, but it often doesn't come across sincere. But Paul is very sincere here. These two words demonstrate the strong affection Paul had for the members of his church. They were more like family to him. Think about the affection you have for your spouse or your children. Or your brothers and sisters. They're more like family to him than just members of a club or an organization. As often churches think of their fellow members today. They're just, we just kind of go to the same church. It's like going to the same grocery store. Going to the same fitness club. That's not how Paul uh, was tied to the, these people. They, he loved them. His affection for them was, again, the inevitable result of pouring his life into them so that they might have an example to follow. When, when, you're in, when you expose your life and you spend time with people, your affection and your bond grows. It increases. And, it, and if we're going to have this sort of relationship that, that Paul had with the Philippians in our church as well, we need to spend time together. We need to be honest with one another. We need to, to, to open our own lives up and, and be ready to welcome other people into our lives. Breaking down fences. Not constructing them. And not only does Paul love and long for the Philippians, but he describes them as his joy and his crown. This is very similar to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And I was reminded again as I was this morning about the, the passage where Paul says, What is our glory or crown of rejoicing? Is it not you? It's, it's with you we truly live, he says. As we see your growth. The word crown, Stephanos, where we get the name Stephen, it doesn't refer to a kingly crown. But it's actually a, a victory crown, like a general would want to achieve. He accomplishes a great battle, or an athlete would be given a crown in, in the games. This, it was a festal gar, garland, woven of leaves, usually. Sometimes it was given by an especially important person. It might be imitation leaves made out of gold that they would wear on their head. And it's what they thought, if they could achieve that, these athletes, these generals, it's what they thought if they could get. That's what would cause them to ascend to the heights of joy and the heights of satisfaction. If I could just get that crown. Today, football players' joy and crown is like winning the Super Bowl. It's what people aim at, what they consider success, what they believe will bring them joy. For Olympic athletes, it's receiving a gold medal. For others, it might be getting to a certain position at work or a certain income level. For others, it might be just simply graduating from an important institution. Or maybe it's just having so many friends on Facebook. For Paul, though, his joy and crown was what? 
It was the Philippians. I mean, we often, we wake up in the morning, we might be thinking, I, I just, I, I'm hoping I can eventually in 10 years achieve this. Well, Paul says, what brings me joy, what I'm ambitious for, is to see you grow in Christ-likeness. That's my glory. That's my crown. That's my joy. It's you. It was the African tribe, the Bekwanas, who became the joy and crown of the 19th century great missionary to South Africa, Robert Moffat, who was the father-in-law of David Livingstone. And Moffat had labored for more than 50 years in South Africa, chiefly at Karuman. And on Sunday, March 20th, 1870, he preached for the last time at his church in Karuman. And in all that congregation, at that time, there were only a few that were his contemporaries. The older people, for the most part, were children when he first came to live among them. And with pathetic grace, he pleaded with those who still remained unbelieving amidst the gospel privileges that they had now enjoyed for so many years. And he also commended the grace of God to those converts who had been his joy and crown. And it was an impressive close to a very impressive career. I mean, he, he established a beachhead for African missions. And on the Friday following, the aged missionary and his wife took their departure. And as they came out of their house and they walked to their wagon, they were beset by crowds of Bekwanas, each longing for a handshake, another for a word of encouragement, another just to give a hug farewell. And as the wagon drove away, it was followed by every person who could walk. And then a long and pitiful wail began to rise. And it was enough to melt the hardest heart. When people become our joy and our crown, it creates a bond and intimacy that is full of deep affection and devotion much like Paul's relationship with the Philippians. And so, one of the critical pieces in helping us stand firm is the affection and bond that members have within a local church. You guys catch that? This is one of the things that will help us stand firm. It's one another. And not just coming together and singing songs together, but living life, spurring one another on, being examples to one another, building Deep devotion and affection together, aiming at that, allowing one another to become our joy and our crown. But if the church is just an institution where people come to hear a concert or hear a social commentary or an inspirational speech, none of this affectionate bond happens. And what happens then is, is the local church is hamstrung. It becomes impotent. It doesn't work. The, the church was not designed to just be a hall where people listen. The local church is people pursuing Christ together. 
And there's such a low view of the local church in America because we're so affected by our culture of independence that we, 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 we actually probably don't expect such relationships to even become a reality. But just recognize most of the commands in the New Testament cannot be fulfilled unless this is how the church functions. That we're with one another, loving one another, caring for one another. I mean, every one another command only happens not just by existing in the same building for an hour, but by being in one another's lives. And I think if you were to join many churches across the globe, outside of our Western context, you would recognize, just maybe in a little bit better focus, of what the church really is supposed to look like. Now, they're not perfect either. They have their weaknesses. But I think one of the weaknesses of our culture, we're very independent. And we hamstring the power of the church. And having brought his exhortation then, that he began to chapter 3 to a conclusion. Paul then makes this exhortation to two women. Verse 2. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And the word urge, it's a very familiar word to us. It's the word parakleo. Where we get the word paraclete in the upper room discourse, the, referring to the Holy Spirit. The word means to come alongside of. It has this idea of comforting, encouraging, kind of like a coach would to an athlete, counseling. Well, here Paul is clearly calling these women to be reconciled in their differences. He's calling them to be reconciled. Well, who are these women? Well, there's, there, there's actually been a lot of speculation as to their identity throughout history. But beyond their names, we can know very little for certain about them. Yodia means literally prosperous journey. Prosperous journey. And Syntyche, uh, pleasant acquaintance or good luck. What was going on between them? Well, apparently, uh, these women were neither prospering in their relationship, nor were they having much luck in serving together. In resolving their conflict. And whatever the conflict was, it was severe enough for Paul to call them out by name in his letter to the whole church. But recognize his words here are not harsh. But they do express concern. He tells them to live in harmony, is the NAS translation. Literally to have this mind. And the word is another word that we've come across many times in Philippians. It's the word phreneo. Phreneo. The verb occurs 11 times in this letter out of 17 occurrences in the New Testament. So this is a key word for Paul in this letter. Think. Have this mindset. So it refers to the process for thinking, the grid for decision making. And this becomes all the more apparent when we see how Paul qualifies his statement with in the Lord. That is, live in harmony or think in the Lord. Think as those who have been saved. Think as those who are following Christ. 
And this is remarkable. For it tells us that what Paul sees as the solution to this conflict they're, they're having between one another is their thinking. He sees as a solution to their conflict having the same mindset. He's not focused on their feelings or their actions, but he focuses on their mindset. The freneo. And in light of what he said in chapter 2, we recognize that what he's doing is he's calling them to have the same mind that Christ had. Let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. They are to pursue Christ-likeness in their thinking. This is the ultimate solution for conflict in Christian relationships. Stop thinking like the world and being self-centered and think the same way Christ thought as was displayed in Philippians chapter 2. Now, we all experience conflict in our relationships. In our family, at work, in our neighborhoods. And here we have the panacea for such conflict. So when conflict emerges between your children, as may happen, so-and-so hit me. Ask the child, well, are you responding to this conflict as Christ would respond? And maybe you could remind them of Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. When a husband says to you, my wife does not respect me, or or a wife, my husband does not cherish me, you could remind them of Isaiah 50, verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Or when a person informs you, I'm underpaid and undervalued for the work that I do for my company. I feel like a slave. Matthew 20, 28. Jesus says, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Or when a person is discontent with their living situation. Remind them that Jesus said, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now we're familiar with these verses. And we read them and it encourages us. It encourages us because we remember how great and wonderful our Lord is. But do we read these verses and recognize that's what we're called to follow? It is not easy to be a Christian. It is not welcoming to the flesh. It's hard. But when we think like this, instead of being defensive, instead of protecting our idols, or even the legitimate things that we have. That opens us up to actually have close, reconciled, 
relationships. And this is how we point our children and our spouses and our friends away from the world and towards Christ-likeness. Now the world will tell you what you need in conflict is to get what you want. I mean, just, just think of divorce lawyers. Get what you want. Get what's yours while you can. And if you're not satisfied in a relationship or if you don't think you're being properly valued, the solution is to leave, to find something new, a new job, a new home, a new family. Because what you want is what matters. I mean, but this is, this is the exact opposite of Christ-like thinking. Christ didn't come into the world and say, hey, I'm going to make the most of this life. After all, I'm the Son of God. I mean, in these suggestions, you can hear the hiss of Satan. Now, that's not to say that we ignore sin in another person. So if somebody's treating us wrongly, especially within the church, in our families, it's not that we would never ignore sin. We would never condone sin or excuse it in a person. However, we need to be primarily concerned about our own pursuit of Christ-likeness. We need to be concerned about our own propensity to sin, our own propensity of pride. What did Jesus say? Take the log that is out, out of your own eye before you start worrying about the dust that is in somebody else's. Remember, our one goal is to become Christ-like. It's not to be respected. It's not to be admired. It's not even to be loved. Having become Christians, our goal is to be like our Lord. And again, these aren't bad things. They're just no longer our aim. We don't reject them. Jesus didn't reject the love of people. But he didn't make that his ambition. And so when God puts us in trying and humiliating situations, what he's doing is he's refining us like gold. He is he is helping us see how we need to continue to grow in Christ's likeness. He's, he's showing us our selfishness. He's showing us our pride. He's showing us our self-love. How we're not like Christ. Remember what Paul said? If you think you're mature, well, God will show you. You're not as mature as you think you are. And trials do this. Remember what, first, what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice. And he's not, he's not joking. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Why would we rejoice? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's saying, your hope's in heaven. Your hope is, is, is Christ. And so, the greatest blessing you can have is to be assured you're really a Christian. If all your hope is that you're, a, you're in Christ, the greatest blessing you can, receive, you can receive is confidence you really are a Christian. And how do we know that? When our faith is tried. So Paul's exhortation to Yodia and Syntyche is less that they would just get along and more that they would 
remember what it means to think like Christ. They would think as he thought, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but they would continue to empty themselves and humble themselves, even to the point of death. And in objection, somebody might say, but if I hold to this Christ-like mentality, I'm never going to get what I want. I'm just going to be a doormat. I'm going to get trampled. But we must consider, well, why would that be such a problem? Now, if we're thinking like the world, you know, the list becomes numerous, right? Why would that be a problem? But no, think again. Think like Christ. Why would that be a problem? It's only a problem if you're living with the assumption that the aim of your life is not Christ-likeness, but gratifying your appetites. Therefore, the Christians should see such a trial as a means to an end. It is a means to help them become Christ-like. This is what Christianity is. But truth be told, even having such a Christ-like mindset will not be enough to solve every conflict. Because one party may think they are thinking like a Christian. They may think they're walking according to the word, and yet they might be completely and truly self-deceived and blind. See, even Jesus warned in John chapter 16, the hour is coming when you are going to be persecuted and people are going to think they're actually serving God in your persecution. So there are clearly people who are really deceived. I mean, how a person could justify that, it's hard to get your mind around. I mean, why would Judas turn on Christ? But it happens. Sometimes people can be in blatant sin that they actually think they're honoring Christ. And in such cases, it's necessary for other members of the body of Christ to come alongside those who are in relational conflict in order to provide outside perspective. And this is why Paul makes the request he does in verse 3. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. And now he addresses his true companion. Literally, it says yoke fellow. Yoke fellow. It refers to one who is closely linked in some association or activity. So think of Paul's uh, exhortation in 2 Corinthians 6.14 to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's the idea. So this was somebody he felt equally yoked with. His genuine companion. Now all sorts of suggestions have been made regarding who Paul might be speaking about here. One is that it was Lydia because she was a woman and might be helpful and reconciling the differences between these two women. And she was also a prominent member of the Church of Philippi, as we see in the book of Acts. Others actually think Paul's referring to his wife because of the word yoked. You know, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, speaking of marital relationships. 
But the problem with this view is that the Greek word genesi, which is used here for yoke fellow, is masculine. So Paul's not referring to a woman here. He's referring to a man. So others suggest that maybe the word is actually a proper name, though it's not found in any of the ancient writings as a proper name. So most likely he's referring to a prominent member in the church, probably a fellow missionary, another elder um, who's serving in Philippi. And this person would know he's being addressed. So maybe it was a nickname that he gave him or something, some way Paul always addressed him. And the request that he makes for his true companion, his yoke fellow, is that he would help these women. And the word translated help here is worthy of our attention. Literally, it is take hold of. Take hold of. Lay hands on. It it, it means to grab onto or to catch. So it's as if these women are slipping away downhill towards the world and Paul exhorts his friend, grab them. And picture that oft-repeated movie scene where people are climbing a cliff and somebody starts to slip and a person reaches out and grabs them and then we're held in suspense. Is the hand going to hold? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Depends on the movie, right? I mean, the cliffhanger, the whole movie was centered around that one scene, if you've seen it. Paul appeals to his friend to catch these women before they fall away. And he adds to this appeal by reminding them that these women were fellow workers in his advancement of the gospel. They had labored with Paul and with Clement and with some of these other workers in Philippi. And apparently they were critical to the church's establishment there. He even reminds them that their names are written in the book of life. Now this is interesting because this is the only time outside of the book of Revelation that the word is used in the New Testament, the book of life. And it refers to those whose names are written in heaven, who are genuine believers, those who are citizens of heaven. It's a citizenship role. Those who are genuinely saved. Those who are sheep and not goats, wheat and not tares. And so Paul's point is, even though these women are in this relational conflict, he's saying true, true companion, they're still believers. These are fellow heirs of the grace of life. And this is why Paul appeals to them to help them in their conflict. See, think of how different a conflict feels when it's between family members and when it's just people you know. Like you might know some people at work that, you know, co-workers that just don't get along. They're in conflict. It's a lot different when it's a conflict between your spouse and their mom or between two children. The burden of that conflict is heavier. Catch them. Don't let them slip away. And this is why in other letters, Christians are called to minister to those who are struggling spiritually. Paul says, Paul says in Galatians 6, 2. Let's see if I have it. 
Paul says in Galatians 6 two, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. He says in James 5, 19 and 20, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and, turn, and one turns him back, let him know that he, he who turns a sinner from the air of his wave will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we should be willing to come alongside church members who are in conflict with one another. Could be a husband with a spouse, could be fellow church members, neighbors. And the aim during this council should not be to assuage feelings, but, but like what Paul does, call them to Christ-likeness. Ask them first and foremost, how are you thinking like Christ in this conflict? Or even just asking, are you? Are you? And if, if, you, can, if you don't think they are, maybe point to scriptures saying, is the, are you really thinking like Christ? We want to call one another to live out what Paul says in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what we're aiming at. Let's discern what God's will is. If the conflict is over, what is God's will? Well, let's, let's figure that out together. Well, what's it assume? You need to have your mind transformed. We're easily deceived. We're easily allured by the deceptions of Satan. We don't see our own pride. We are easily blinded. And so we need other brothers and sisters to challenge us. Not by, hey, this is what I think. Not by their opinion. Not by quoting Oprah. But by saying, brother, sister, do you think like Christ? On October 21st, 1805, Admiral Horatio Nelson of the Royal British Navy had just caught the Franco-Spanish fleet in a blockade off the coast of Cadiz, Spain. And however, just before the famous battle of Trafalgar, he discovered that an admiral was in a massive conflict with one of his fellow officers, a captain. And when Nelson was enlightened of this conflict, he invited both those men to his ship. And what he did, as he took them outside, and he took both their hands and he placed them together. And he pointed to the enemy's ships. And earnestly looking them both in the face, he uttered these simple words. Men, look. Yonder is the enemy. That's the enemy. And it was enough. The disagreements were forgotten and victory was achieved. And sometimes all that's necessary to bring a conflict, a relational conflict to terms is just that reminder. This person is not your enemy. Sin is your enemy. Be more concerned about your sin than just how this other person has hurt you. That doesn't mean you ignore their sin. You, you're concerned about their sin too, but you're really concerned about your sin. That's the enemy. 
not the other person. I can't tell you how many times this has been incredibly helpful to conflicts I've had in my own marriage. And, and to be frank and honest, it's usually my wife that brings it up. Honey, I'm not your enemy. She probably says it once a month. I'm not your enemy. And she's right. And I need to hear that. I need to hear that. Because how easy it is just for us to think about just how we feel, our grumpiness, our things aren't going our way, why life should go our way, rather than think, my enemy is sin because my aim is to be like Christ. It's not to get what we want. It's not to be admired or even respected. Our aim is to be Christ-like in the way that we act, even in the way that we feel, but especially in the way that we think. We need to think like Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it is, it is frankly much easier to preach these things than to live these things. And I say that without any, any sense of not wanting to obey all of Your words here completely. Knowing that it might have a, an immense cost. And yet, Father, I would rather have the cost of following Christ afflict my life than the cost of giving into sin. And I pray the same for my brothers and sisters, that we really would hate sin, especially our own sin, so that we would really, really love people, have compassion for people, have hearts that break for people, that we could say with full sincerity that, they, that we long for them, that they are our beloved friends. Heal relationships, Lord. Through your word. Help us to take hold of this counsel. Heal marriages. Reconcile parents with children. That we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.